Welcome to the weekly podcast of Valley Church. I pray that this message will fill you with the hope of the gospel and will help you follow Jesus today. If you would like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, visit valleychurchwv.com. Now let's tune in to this week's message. So over the last several weeks, um, we've been making our way through the book of 1 Corinthians, and today we will be in chapter 10. In chapter 10, um, Paul is kind of going to show off his teaching skills, um, and he's going to give us three things. He's going to first give us a history lesson, and usually every good history lesson has a warning inside of it. Um, He's going to give a correction, and then he's going to give an encouragement because we can all use that. So let's start with the history lesson. So like I said, history lessons will usually serve as a good warning if we are willing to listen. Um, I recently read in a book that what we don't repair, we will repeat. So um, learning from history is an incredible way to um, live your life. So Paul's history lesson takes us back to the books of Exodus and Numbers in the Old Testament, where Moses recounts the exodus of God's people from the land of Egypt, where they had been slaves for 400 years, and then follows that journey um, with them into the promised land. So he makes the case right off the bat here in chapter 10 that the Israelites, back during the time of the exodus, were in many important ways just like the Christians in Corinth. Yet God was not pleased with the Israelites. He uses, Paul uses similar faith language to describe the Israelites' spiritual experience in the wilderness. Um, So let's uh, read verses 1 through 5 in chapter 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So Paul's telling them they were baptized, just like you Christians in Corinth. They all ate the same spiritual food and drink kind of talking about communion, just like you Christians in Corinth. And finally, he says they had the rock that was Christ, just like you Christians in Corinth. Yet God was not pleased with them, and they were overthrown in the wilderness. And notice Paul's use of the word all. All passed through the sea. All were baptized. All ate. All drank. And so there's a unity among the people in the wilderness. Yet they were overthrown in the wilderness. Have you ever heard a cautionary tale and the person that they're describing sounds just like you and you're like, oh my gosh. That's that's the emotion that Paul's trying to elicit from the Corinthians here. He's trying to show them that essentially the Israelites had all the pieces of the puzzle that should have pleased God. Baptism, communion, they had Christ. Um, But verse 5 tells us explicitly that with most of them, God was not pleased. So why was he not pleased? Let's keep reading. In verse 6, it says, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. So what a privileged place we have on this side of history. We can look back 
and um, hopefully learn some things. It's a great opportunity. So Paul is saying that we have to learn from our history. We are not so spiritual elite um, that we are immune to God's displeasure. On to verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. So there's a lot to unpack here, but let's start um, with Paul's first example in verse 7. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So here, Paul is referring to Exodus 32, which is the golden calf incident. Basically, the people of God had miraculously escaped Egypt under the leadership of a man named Moses, and they're on their way to the promised land. And so in Exodus, 12 chapters before this golden calf incident, um, God had already given them the Ten Commandments. And so I'm going to pause for a really quick quiz. Last year, I stood up here and I said, the commands of God are for your good always. So that always includes the Israelites in the wilderness. It includes the Christians in Corinth. And it also includes us here today. So what was that first commandment that was for their good always that they had received? Have no other gods before me. So Moses... In, in this Exodus 32, ex, or, um, Moses is on the mountain meeting with God, and the people are below, and they're like getting a little impatient because Moses was taking too long meeting with God. So they had Aaron make them an idol that would go before them. And so he throws their jewelry into the fire, and out pops this golden calf. And that is his words, not mine. So after that, a disgusting celebration followed, and obviously God was mad. Moses was mad. Everybody was mad. It was not a good thing. Throughout all of redemption, redemptive history, God has been calling his people to change. He called the Israelites to change. He calls the Corinthians to change. He calls us to change. But also, throughout all of redemptive history, we've been resistant. The Israelites were resistant. The Corinthians are resistant. We've been resistant. God calls us to change, but so often we are resistant. Why are we resistant to change? If you think about it, what is your life but a series of changes? The thing we resist the most is actually what we're made of. Changes in your body, changes in your mind, changes in your spirit. None of us are today who we were when we were born obviously. None of us here are today what we were 10 years ago, five years ago, a year ago. Um, when life is kind, we experience changes that are gradual, very natural, and usually seamless. Um, we don't mind those types of changes. We're changing and we don't even know it. But other times, changes can be quite the opposite, right? Changes can be jarring, they can be unnatural, and they can be extremely painful. Um, those are changes that we don't want and certainly don't ask for. And sometimes I think the hardest changes are those that are changes that are asked of you by some outside source, like your spouse or your parents 
or your teacher, somebody outside of you is asking you to change. So nothing makes us dig our heels in more than when somebody else is asking us to do that change. But here we have, you know, the Israelites in the wilderness. This ultimate outside source is asking them to change. So surely they would listen to God, right? <sighs> so they've been, the Israelites have been rescued from slavery. They're taken on this journey to the promised land. And so after 400 years of slavery in Egypt, they needed to be reacquainted with their God. Um, so they were in great need of a heart change. So they were given the commands of God, but they were resistant. Um, this resistance in the Israelites, in the Corinthian church, and even in us, it makes me think of this quote I heard almost 20 years ago when I was a graduate student. Um, it's from a well-known psychotherapist and um, social worker, and she's considered the mother of family therapy. She passed in the 1980s, but obviously her work and her words still live on. She worked with many, many families over her years of practice, um, and she kind of came to this conclusion about, um, in her observation of humanity. Will you put that up there? The next one. People prefer the certainty of misery to the misery of uncertainty. So read that. People prefer the certainty of misery to the misery of uncertainty. And when I heard that, I was like, ugh. That's why her job as a psychotherapist and as a social worker was so hard. People are so resistant to change because we fear the unknown, right? We resist what we don't know. We would rather stay in a situation that we know and we're comfortable with, even when we know it's not good for us, rather than risk change, risk something different for ourselves, because who knows, it could be worse. Our resistance to change is a form of protection, um, and we think resisting that change keeps us safe. We figure out ways to become comfortable in our situation, whether it's healthy for us or not. The certainty of our misery that we know is so much safer than the risk of change, the risk of the unknown, that misery of uncertainty when we don't know what's coming. We do not like taking a leap of faith. We do not like change for the most part. So as Paul is going to show us in his history lesson, the Israelites said over and over, let's go back to that certainty of misery in Egypt that we know their lives of making bricks for harsh taskmasters. That's literally what their life was in Egypt. And many times they will ask Moses, take us back, or they'll try to find a leader, take us back to that certainty of misery. The gods that they could make, that golden calf, that they could make with their own hands and see with their own eyes, to them that was so much safer than following this unknown to them God. Let's look back in verse 8. Let's go on to Paul's next example. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. So Paul's really pouring it on here. He's referring to Numbers 25, when the Israelites were still en route to the promised land, and they were on the plains of Moab, and the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with the Moabite women, which inevitably led them to sacrificing to their gods, to their false gods. So it's not good on so many levels. And again, God was displeased. Um, and this time, he sent a plague, and thousands of them died. But Paul's not done. <laughs> His next example was in verse 9. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. So how did they put Christ to the test? They were impatient. 
They were uncomfortable, so they complained about the food and water they were receiving in the wilderness, miraculously. Um, but they wanted what they had in Egypt. They were in fear of what could be, and, and instead they wanted what they had already had. God was angry again, and this time he sent snakes, and many died. So Paul is highlighting the fact over and over that the resistance to the change of heart that was required to follow God, that resistance has serious consequences. So finally in verse 10, he says, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. The reference Paul is making here is from Numbers, where the people complained and grumbled about the food they were miraculously given from heaven and the water that they were given in the desert. They grumbled and complained, and this is when they even wanted to find a leader that would take them back to Egypt. What was their condition in Egypt? They were slaves. Yet that certainty of misery was better for them than this misery of uncertainty they felt in the wilderness. I wonder how often that's us, preferring what we know to what God is calling us to. Change is hard, and Paul is showing us here, even in conditions like slavery in a foreign land that should have produced a desire for change, um, the people were still resistant. So that's, that's the major part of the history lesson. So that's the Israelites in the wilderness. They had all the right ingredients, yet they were idolaters, they were sexually immoral, and they grumbled and complained about God's provision for them. So now look in verse 11. He's going to take that history lesson and bring it home to the saints in Corinth in the form of a correction. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. I think each new generation can be guilty of this. We, you know, we look back on previous generations kind of with our noses up to them, like, oh, I'm glad I wasn't a part of that generation. Ooh. You know, but obviously we're usually pretty much just like the generation that just came, usually in many ways worse. <laughs> but we look back at them and we think, oh, you know. But, but Paul is saying here, don't be so arrogant that you can't look back on history and learn from it. It's a wake-up call to the saints in Corinth. Like I said, they had all the same ingredients that the Israelites had. They had baptism, communion, Christ is the rock, and God was displeased with them. So let's look in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So oftentimes I think when we're, we're in the books of First and Second Corinthians and we think, oh, Corinth, and, and we think that that was the hardest thing that the Corinthians had to come into contact with, the Christians in Corinth, because Corinth was such a terrible city. We, we pay a lot of attention to that. You know, it was, it was um, there was rampant idolatry there and there was all kinds of sexual immorality. So we think, oh, Corinth. Um, but here I think Paul puts that in proper perspective. So look in verse 13. He says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. So this is what I hear Paul saying. Let's not blame Corinth for your problems. You haven't experienced any temptation that everyone else in the history of the world hasn't already dealt with. Moreover, continuing in that verse, God is faithful. So if, if, I were, if you like write, write in your Bibles, I would circle that. God is faithful. 
He will be faithful to help you endure whatever temptations you are facing in any culture that you come in contact with. Has anyone ever looked at American culture and you're like, ugh, and you're tempted to just withdraw or you're tempted to go off the grid? Um, Remember, God is faithful. We cannot blame the Corinthian culture um, any more than we could have blamed the wilderness for the Israelites. Um, There's one thing in common with all these places. People are there. (laughs) So temptation will find you wherever you go. So this is between you and God. So let's look in verses, a bigger chunk here, 14 to 22. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all, ha- for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So apparently some of the brothers and sisters in Corinth, um, they were still eating and drinking in pagan temples, and they weren't seeing the danger in it. So Paul has to spell it out for them. Flee from idolatry. And then he spends a paragraph explaining to them why eating in a pagan temple is, is wrong to do. And then he asks, shall we provoke the Lord that's always no. That answer, is, that answer is always no. All right, so let's listen carefully to this next section of Scripture, starting in verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the believers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience, and I don't mean for your conscience, but for his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? And if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I gave thanks. So when you see in verse 23 where it's in in Corinthians, it's in parentheses, um, all things are lawful. That was the Christian slogan that they had in Corinthians. All things are lawful. The NIV, I like the NIV's translation of it. It says, I have the right to do anything. Yeah, that's not a good slogan. (laughs) Um, For the Valley is much better, so I like that one. For a few chapters, Paul has been concerned about the Christians in Corinth using their freedom in Christ to the extent that it makes a brother or sister in Christ stumble who may not understand all of the commands of God and and how they apply to them. Um, Imagine going around as a Christian in Corinth, and we've already talked about how sinful it is there anyway, and a Christian in Corinth is 
walking around going, I have the right to do anything. Think of how confusing that would be to somebody who has a younger or weaker faith, or even to somebody who is an unbeliever. You have the right to do anything? We're in Corinth, and there's a lot to do here. <laughs> that's, that's a really confusing slogan to have. So it may be lawful in some cases, but it's not helpful. The main correction is to be careful not to use our freedom in Christ to do anything that would cause our brother or sister in Christ to stumble or even totally confuse an unbeliever. You may have the right to do it, but it isn't right to do. It's an attitude that he's addressing. Pastor Jonathan did a really good job of explaining this last week, and if you didn't listen to that, I would encourage you to go back and listen because um, he had some really good wisdom there. The Corinthians were feeling really good about their their forgiveness in Christ, and they should, but it was so, they were feeling so good about it, it was producing a form of pride in them. And it was causing others to stumble, and it was putting them in some compromising places, like pagan temples. They're like, no, it's fine, it's fine. This, this doesn't mean anything. This food sacrifice doesn't mean anything. It's just food. That was really confusing to unbelievers and other younger believers. Um, and it was producing this form of pride in them. There was an attitude in that slogan that they have. I have the right to do anything. There was an attitude that Paul is after here. And it's pride. And pride is a very messy part of the human condition. But Paul has an answer for pride. And he gives it to us in the form of an encouragement. So we've made it through the history lesson, the correction. Now we have an encouragement from Paul. So let's look at this last section, verses 31 to 33. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. So pride was taking root in the Corinthians, and, and pride is extremely self-focused, right? Pride separates you and puts you first. It puts you at the center of the story. Remember that slogan, I have the right to do anything. That's why Paul is calling us to something so radical here, and it's in verse 31. Here's the answer to pride. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Paul knows the ultimate fix for pride. Pride places you at the center of the universe. But Paul's antidote, and I also want to include something he said in verse 24, is let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. And then number two in verse 31, he says, do all for the glory of God. So it's this two-step prescription for radical otherness. Taking the focus off of self and what you have the right to do and putting it onto others and onto God. Why? Why would we do that? Look at the end of verse 33. Not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. That's for the valley. And as the quintessential missionary and ambassador of the, of the gospel, Paul became all things to all people to win them to Christ. He didn't compromise the message of the gospel. But he did consider the culture, each culture that he was with, whether it was Jews or Greeks or even the church. He considered who he was around um, and then the way that he, he um, gave them the gospel. So his two steps here are seeking the good of your neighbor 
and then doing all to the glory of God. So how do we best do that? How do we best seek the good of our neighbor and bring glory to God? I think we do that best when we love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind and our strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. So it sounds familiar, doesn't it? We've been told this before, to love God and to love neighbor. Um, Actually, it's in Matthew 22, verses 36 to 40. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? So somebody's asking Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And he says to them, Jesus said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, so do all to the glory of God. That's the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So you should seek the good of your neighbor. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. So Paul's word of encouragement to the Corinthians, those words are just a reiteration of what Jesus said when he was here on earth preaching to the people. Do all for the glory of God and consider others before yourself. So loving God and loving neighbor. What else would we expect for Paul to bring us here? And I want to show you something else just because I I want you to see that throughout all of our Bible, we've been hearing this same message to love God and to love neighbor. Um, So if you can grab a Bible, I want you to turn to Deuteronomy with me. And in the Pew Bible, it's on page 141. So it's Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. When I was teaching in the kids' class last month, (laughs) I was with the first and second graders, and they don't have as many Bibles in that room, probably because there's not as many readers. So a bunch of kids wanted to read. So we only had two Bibles in there, so I got my phone out and got my Bible up on my phone, and they're like, that's cheating! I'm like, oh, sorry. So, so, um, but yeah, so if we can all open our Bibles, or on your phone, I won't call you a cheater, it's fine. Um, Okay, so back, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today, I'm going to keep going because it's too good, shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. And when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and, you shall, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So this is Moses speaking to the Israelites, the same Israelites that God was not happy with. He was giving that message even then. Now let's look back at, a couple books back is Leviticus. And in the Pew Bible, it's going to be on page 91. I, want, I just want to show you where this is. It's all throughout the Bible. So in Leviticus 19, verses 17 and 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly, frank, frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So in these very same books where Moses was um, 
leading his people through the wilderness, leading the people through the wilderness, um, God was speaking the same message to them, love to God and love to neighbor. It's back here. It's in Matthew. It's in the New Testament when Jesus was preaching it to the people then. And then it's right here in Corinthians. Paul is saying the same exact thing to the people of Corinth. The transforming power of the gospel takes us out of the center and places God as the central focus. Love to God and love to others. So when you're loving God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and your strength, that's when he receives the most glory. When you love your neighbor, when you consider your neighbor before yourself, that's when God receives the most glory. It's how a slogan transforms from, I have the right to do anything, to something more like we have here at Valley Church, for the Lord and for the valley. It's a message that you will hear told over and over again in Scripture, as I just showed you. And it's throughout all redemptive history. The commands to love God and love neighbor have always been a central focus, first to the Israelites in the wilderness, to the Corinthians, and then also in Jesus' day. It's been there all along. And it makes me wonder, you know, if, if the Israelites had loved God and loved neighbor, would they have all made it to the promised land? instead of being overthrown in the wilderness? If the Corinthian church had loved God with all their heart and their neighbor as themselves, would there have been need of this history lesson and this correction? Would we have even had this letter of 1 Corinthians? If people had been loving God and loving neighbor truly and glorifying God, would we have need of that? So what was it that you needed to hear this morning? A history lesson? It's all right here for you to read. A, cor a correction, maybe. The Christian life is not a series of checked boxes, like, did that, now I'm good. Baptism, check. Communion, check. No, it's a daily walk with God. And we will hear Paul tell us in a couple of chapters that without love, and I would add without love to God and love to neighbor, our best practices are empty and hollow. Maybe you needed to hear Paul's encouragement. It's such a good reminder. So when life can get all crazy and and twist it up. Sometimes we need to hear the sweet simplicity of the greatest commandment, to love God and to love neighbor, for the Lord and for the valley. If we can focus on loving God with our whole heart and loving others and considering others before ourselves, then we're well on our way, loving God, loving neighbor. So think about your takeaway. What would it look like for you to do all for the glory of God and consider others at work, or at school, or in your home. Maybe asking yourself this might help. So are there areas of my life that I'm doing all for the glory of myself? Is there some place in your life where you do all things to the glory of yourself? Would your coworkers say, she always puts others first? <laughs> and I'm not talking about in a people-pleaser sort of way but that you love and consider others on their deepest need levels. So, ask yourself those things. And I think I want to just end with um, something before we sing our way out of here. Um, I've been alluding to it throughout this um, message here, is that we have kind of a slogan, I wouldn't call it a slogan, I don't know, for the Lord and for the valley here at church. So if you're ever here in the mornings when we pray before... Um, 
like around 9.30, we pray about the service and, and the worship team gathers together and um, we all pray together. And at the end, we put our hands together. We say, for the Lord and for the valley. That's love to God and love to neighbor, love to others. So, you know what I'm going to ask you to do? I think we should all stand up. <laughs> put your hands in and on three, for the Lord and for the valley. Ready? One, two, three. For the Lord and for the valley. Yep. So, <laughs> so whatever you do, whether you're eating, you're drinking, whatever you're doing, do all for the Lord and for the valley. Amen. All right, let's pray. You can continue standing and we'll pray and then we'll sing and get out of here. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for loving us enough to correct us and to encourage us with your word. Help us to live out your word in our lives each and every day. Help us to bring glory to you in all that we do by loving you with all of our heart, our soul, and our mind. Help us to bring glory to you as we consider others and we love them well. Help us to live our lives for you, for the Lord and for this valley. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Valley Church. If you were impacted by today's teaching or made a decision to follow Jesus, we would love to hear from you, pray for you, and walk with you. To connect with us, visit valleychurchwv.com. There you will find resources on following Jesus and information about how to partner with us here at Valley Church as we seek, serve, and send disciples of Christ.